Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Sergio Verdu. Uh, welcome, everyone, to the Walter H. Lecture in uh, Public and International Affairs. Uh, this uh, lecture series was founded in 1957 in memory of Walter E. H., uh, who served twice as governor of New Jersey, and he was also a United States senator and ambassador to France. The lectureship is supported by a bequest from his estate as a means of bringing to Princeton eminent statesmen from abroad, as well as leaders in American public life. Lecturers in this series have included George Kennan, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, and Isaac Asimov. So it's uh, really a great pleasure to uh, introduce tonight's uh, lecturer, Professor Lawrence Lesick of uh, Stanford University Law School. Um, Professor Lessig got his undergraduate education at the University of Pennsylvania and his uh, law degree at Yale. And prior to his uh, current position, he was in the faculties of the University of Chicago and uh, also Harvard University. He's uh, the leading scholar on the legal aspects of new technologies, and in particular, cyberspace, uh, copyright, and the radio spectrum. He's the author of um, Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace, who, which is a groundbreaking deconstruction of the digital age. And also, uh, he's the author of The Future of Ideas, and uh, he currently teaches constitutional law at Stanford. In the last few months, uh, he argued the case against the uh, uh, Copyright Term Extension Act in the, U in the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, today, in his, uh, in his talk, he's going to uh, lecture about uh, a very ambitious project of his called the Creative Commons. Professor Lessig. So we the lights. So in 1928, this man, my hero, Walt Disney created this creature. A character named Steamboat Willie. Steamboat Willie became Mickey Mouse. And so from Steamboat Willie, we got Mickey Mouse. And from Mickey Mouse, we got Disney Corporation. But what you might not know is that in 1928, this man created this work. Buster Keaton produced Steamboat Bill Jr. And Steamboat Bill Jr. was the inspiration that my hero, Walt Disney, took when he created Steamboat Willie. In fact, so clear is the evidence that if you look at the play script for Steamboat Willie, it directs that the orchestra shall start playing the opening verses of Steamboat Bill as soon as the title flashes on. Thus, from Steamboat Bill became Steamboat Willie, and from Steamboat Willie became Mickey Mouse, and from Mickey Mouse became the Disney Corporation, and that's what we call creativity, or that's what we call Disney creativity, or that's what we call Walt Disney creativity. And my message is, it's wonderful. It's exactly 
the tradition and spirit of creativity that we should be embracing now. Disney always was parroting feature-length mainstream films. In fact, think of the collection of Disney works. They are all works that were based on works in the public domain, including the latest disaster, Treasure Planet. Disney was constantly parroting, changing, in some ways improving these works that were out there for him to take and build upon. For example, you know these men. They are the brothers Grimm. They wrote fairy tales, which you probably think are wonderful stories that all children should read. They're not. They are grim. They are bloody, moralistic, awful stories, which Disney retold to us in ways to make them beautiful and nice. That was Disney's contribution. It's a Walt Disney creativity. And that creativity has defined a feature of what creative work has always been about, embracing the freedom to take, change, and release ideas from our popular culture back into the popular culture. Now, these ideals still live. Here's a modern story of them. Hi. Hi. Okay, here's my idea. We'll start the CD with Liz, Polyester Bride. Sure. Track two, I want De La Soul doing Ooh. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Hey, Smash Mouth, how about All Star? I don't think so. Okay, that's good. <laughs> I would drop the funk bomb. Come on, George. And Barry, how about something for, you know, the ladies? Are you sure you're ready for that? Oh, you speak of my language. your music. Burn it all the back. The culture of rip, mix, and burn. It defines the modern digital culture. It's a concept which is Disney familiar. It's the idea of taking, we could say ripping, changing, we could say mixing, releasing, we could say burning our culture in new ways. It is exactly what the tools of the digital age enable. They enable something called the digital consumer, right? There was the analog consumer. This is a picture of him, the couch potato. Now we have the no longer the passive programmed fed consumer. Instead, we have the digital consumer who is active programming and feeding, building culture by sampling, releasing Walt Disney creativity again. Now, of course, Disney creativity in this sense doesn't live just in the United States. Here's a favorite example of mine. The Japanese are obsessed with these things. They call them manga, that's comics. The Japanese comic market is 40% of all publications in Japan. 30% of all revenue to publishers is the manga revenue. But that's not the Disney creativity I'm talking about, and that's not the Disney creative part. This is the part that's Disney creative. These are standard manga released by man manga artists, but on the left are copycat manga, what the Japanese call dojinshi. The doujinshi comic market is a market of copycat comics where people take and modify and release works that others have produced. There are some 33,000 circles of these artists within Japan, and twice a year, the largest public gathering of people in Japan is to attend conferences to trade these comics, 450,000 people 
gather to exchange in this form of commerce, this form of rip, mixing, and burning the culture that they find before them, or here's how you would say it in Japanese. This is a extraordinary creativity, commentators say, creativity that is feeding the manga market, feeding the comic market that it competes with. But here's the puzzle. Japanese manga, Japanese comics, are flourishing in Japan. In the United States, the United States comic market is essentially dead. Of course, we have men in tights, you know, uh, and we've got some progress here. We now have women in tights. That's the advance that we've got. But essentially, the manga market here is dead. And the question is, what accounts for this? Now, from a Disney perspective, from the Disney creativity perspective, it's easy to see why. In Japan, this form of creativity is called creative. In the United States, this form of creativity is called illegal. The manga market that gets replicated in doujinshi form would be an illegal market in the United States. For example, in 1995, Alan Katz and Chris Wren took this comic and changed it into this comic. This was The Cat is Not in the Hat. That comic was quickly told by a federal court that it was illegal. Or in 1971, Bobby London and Dan O'Neill took this comic and released it to the market. It was a Air Pirates comic making fun of this character. Very quickly, the lawyers told them that, too, was illegal. So how is this, you might wonder? For, of course, remember, if this could be copied like that, how is it that this can't be copied like this? What is it that accounts for the fact that the scope of creative energy that's enabled today is restricted compared to where it was before? So we're in the middle of a war, not that war. I want to talk about a different war. We're in the middle of a copyright war. The war about copyright, which, as Jack Valenti describes, is his own, quote, terrorist war, a war about who has access to and can distribute content. It's a war against this rip, mix, and burn culture. The concept that drives this war is this idea of copyright. And most people think of this concept of copyright as a constant across our history. Most people think that this constant is now under threat because of the technology of the Internet, and therefore we must wage this war to defend traditional values against the upstarts who would destroy who we are. But here's what we miss. Copyright is not a rock across the ages. Copyright is an acorn which has transformed itself into the oak. It is not a constant, but it is constantly changing and, in fact, constantly growing. And the freedoms that it now restricts are radically different from the freedoms that it originally restricted when it was born. The law now is different. In fact, I'm going to show you five ways in which it is different. And therefore, the control that it expends is vastly greater. And it's this expanded control that creates the problem that this war sets out 
to solve. Okay, so let's start with one difference, duration. Disney built its greatest work on top of the public domain. See, there it is, right there, on top of the public domain. It was able to do that because the public domain represented free culture, culture that you could use, appropriate, and exploit without the permission of anybody else, the public domain is then, in this extraordinarily important sense that we lawyers forget, a lawyer-free zone. It is that resource that the culture makes available to others that you need not ask anyone before you can draw upon, and that's exactly how Disney was able to draw upon the culture that he drew upon. Now, the public domain builds culture, but the public domain itself is something that we must build. In fact, that we build through law. It is because copyright terms are, quote, limited, that the work then passes into the public domain and fuels the public domain that others like Disney might draw upon. Now, before 1774, there was no such clear concept as the concept of the public domain. England in 1710 had enacted the Statute of Anne, which presumptively said copyrights would be for a limited term. But even though the statute said that, copyright owners, which were typically booksellers, continued to argue that copyright was perpetual. And it was only in 1774 that the court finally declared that copyrights must end, and for the first time, in 1774, works such as the works of Shakespeare were free to the public domain. Before that, copyright was perpetual. After 1774, copyright is limited. And it is this idea of a limited protection for copyrighted works that the Americans then copied. We took this idea from the English, the English who had fought over this idea because their main objective in limiting the terms of copyright was to assure that the monopolists of the time, the booksellers, would not have a power to veto the way culture would develop in the future. By limiting the terms of copyright, it created the opportunity for many competitors to the booksellers. So in 1789, the United States drafts Article I, Section 8, Clause 8 of the Constitution that says Congress has the power to promote the progress of science by securing for limited times, let's make sure we got that, for limited times, for limited times, for limited times, exclusive right to authors for their writing. Now, the first Congress, the Congress, that had enacted this limitation on the scope of Congress's power respected the principle of this limitation by granting copyrights for a term of 14 years, which could be renewed once to 28 years, only 5% of the potential work that could have been copyrighted was in fact copyrighted during this period of time. That meant that 95% passed into the public domain immediately, and the vast majority of the 5% passed into the public domain after 14 years. Now this term has changed. In 1831, it was extended to 42 years. 1909, it was extended to 56 years. 
Then, see, watch, no hands here, right? Um, Starting in 1962, Congress began extending the term of existing copyrights and now has extended the term of existing copyrights 11 times in 40 years. Now, each time Congress extends the term of existing copyrights, it tolls the passage of work into the public domain. It stops it like a dam. And in the last 40 years, 70% of the time, work has been stopped from passing into the public domain. Congress has gotten into a practice, and the practice is emblematic in the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act, otherwise known as the Mickey Mouse Protection Act, because every time Mickey is about to pass into the public domain, Congress extends the term of copyright again. This reveals the attitude that copyright should now be perpetual, but the Constitution says limited, so we will give them perpetual copyright on the installment plan. That's Congress's current attitude, and that has especially transformed the duration of copyright in the last 30 years. Because until the change in 1976, copyright was a limited right that had to be renewed. So in 1973, for example, the average term of copyrighted works was 32.2 years because 85% of work was not renewed after 28 years, so that the average term was significantly below the maximum term of 56 years. But now the copyright term The average is the maximum because there's no renewal required, no registration required. It's an automatic protection that extends for 95 years, tripling the term of copyright in the last 30 years. Thus, this duration is radically increased. Two, scope. 1790, the framers gave copyrights for map charts and books, gave a protection against somebody republishing your maps, charts, and books. Republishing the exact same work didn't cover translations or abridgments or any other kind of modification to the work. You got that right only if you registered the work, only if you deposited the work into a public library. It was therefore a regulation of publishers. And in 1790, there are 170 for publishers in the United States. It's a tiny regulation of a tiny part of the creative culture that defined the nation at the time. Now this too has radically changed. No longer maps, charts, and books. It's anything reduced into a tangible form. No longer protection against just republishing. It's a protection against any copy. No longer a protection of just the same work. It's also a protection if it's a same or a derivative work. So if you modify the work and release it or translate it or set the work to song, that too is protected. Whether or not the work is registered, whether or not the work is deposited, whether or not the work is marked with the silly little C in a circle. This is an automatic grant of rights that means today that creators now need permission to create in the way that Disney created before they could rip, mix, and burn because that right was protected by a narrow scope of copyright. Now they need to say, please, sir, may I rip, mix, and burn your culture into making my new creative work. 
Three, the reach. Here's the change that is most significant that none of us really recognized up front, right? Here's an obvious fact. The law regulates copies. So imagine this is the picture of all the possible uses of a copyrighted work. Most of these uses are completely unregulated. So if I have a book, I can read the book. That's not an act regulated by the copyright law because reading does not produce a copy. I can give the book to you. That's not an act regulated by the copyright law because giving doesn't produce a copy. I can sell it because that's not an act regulated by the copyright law because that does not itself produce a copy. I can sleep on it, and the copyright law can say nothing to me about my use of the book in this way. These uses are unregulated. Then there's a core possible uses of a copyrighted work that are regulated. For example, if I publish that book without the permission of the copyright owner, then I have violated a copyright. And then among the presumptively regulated uses of a copyrighted work, there's a small sliver of uses that we call fair use. The right to quote, for example, a work of another author, whether you have the permission to quote or not. Enter the internet. Here's the basic technical fact. It's the only technology I'm going to give you tonight. Here it is. Suck it in, and this is the fun of the evening. Every act on this network is a copy. It is the architecture of the digital network that in order to use it, whatever you're doing is in that act of being used, producing a copy. That sounds trivial, you say. Yes, but don't put it beyond the law to turn the whole world on the dime of triviality. Here it is. Because of that trivial act of producing a copy, the reach of the copyright law expands dramatically to cover these previously unregulated acts. So here's an example. Here's my Adobe ebook reader. I have a bunch of ebooks. Here's one, Middlemarch. Right? If you click on the permissions of the Middlemarch book, you'll learn that the permissions are that I can copy 10 text selections of this book to the clipboard every 10 days. I haven't copied any recently. You can print 10 pages from this book every 10 days. Again, I haven't printed anything recently. And I'm allowed to use the read aloud button to read this book. <laughs> Middlemarch, a book in the public domain. Here's another book, never under a copyright in any real sense, right? I am not allowed to copy any text selections of this book to the clipboard. I'm not allowed to print any pages of this book, but again, I'm free to use the read aloud button to listen to this book. Now to my great embarrassment, here's my book. Don't copy any text of my book, don't print any pages of my book, and don't you dare attempt to read my book aloud using your computer. Right? Now, you might ask, by what rights can these controls be imposed? And the core extraordinary reason is in the act of using this book, every act is a copy, therefore every act is presumptively regulated by this law. So that what before was an unregulated act is now in the core of regulation, and now I must argue, oh, please, it's fair use. I'm allowed to use it because it's fair use when before I needed to argue nothing at all, it was just unregulated. Now, this change in the reach 
combines with an important change in the force of how this work gets regulated. Before the net, it was the law that regulated copyright. Here's a favorite example of mine. There was a point of time when Warner Brothers sent a letter to the Marx Brothers because the Marx Brothers wanted to do a takeoff on Casablanca. And the Warner Brothers informed the Marx Brothers that the Warner Brothers owned the copyrights to Casablanca and copyrights would not be granted for them to make this parody of the movie in the way that the Marx Brothers wanted, which led the Marx Brothers to write back to the Warner's Brothers and say that the Marx Brothers predated the Warner Brothers and therefore they own the term brothers and Warner Brothers wouldn't be allowed to refer to themselves as brothers ever again because it was violating their copyright. <laughs> now the point of the exchange is to show that however silly claims were in the past, they were only effective if a judge, after hearing the claim, agreed with the complainant. So if Warner Brothers actually said this, the judge would think to himself, in the context of a court, does this make sense? These were human judgments about the appropriateness of the regulation of copyright law, how broadly it should be read to reach. But the fundamental difference that now defines the nature of copyright is that it's no longer courts that determine what the reach of copyright law is. Again, think back to my Adobe ebook reader. It's not because a court is deciding that I can only print 10 pages every 10 days, or a court is deciding I can only copy 10 selections into my memory every 10 days. It's because the code of the ebook reader, the software, the architecture within which this content lives, is enforcing that control. And however much I might be free to stand up before a judge and say, judge, this is a silly restriction and you should not enforce it, I can scream however much I want at my computer and my computer will not listen. The computer, the code, is now supporting the control of the copyright law. And then, because Congress didn't think that was enough, they added another layer of control. This is a law designed to support the protections that the code imposes to support the protections that the law imposes to support copyright. Here's how it works. Here's a favorite creature of mine. Not quite as much a hero as Walt Disney is. This is the Sony Ibo dog, a cute little puppy, doesn't create as much mess as other puppies, but it's a lot more expensive, I can guarantee. This puppy can do lots of things, but of course can't do everything. So fans of the Sony Ibo dog decided that they would exchange information about how to teach your dog to do new tricks. And this site set up a little experiment to show you how you could hack your dog, not in the brutal sense, but in the <laughs> coding sense, to teach your dog to dance jazz. Now, sometimes when I'm you know, in foreign countries, I have to remind them that in the United States, it's still completely legal to teach your dog to dance jazz or to dance jazz yourself. In most jurisdictions outside of 
Georgia, I guess, this is a completely legal act, right, to teach or to dance jazz yourself. So this is a permissible act under any conception of a free society. But this site received this letter from the Sony Corporation. Your site contains information providing the means to circumvent IBOWARE's copy protection protocol constituting a violation of the anti-circumvention provisions of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. What are they? They say it's against the law to try to circumvent technology that's designed to protect copyrighted works, even if the purpose of the circumvention would be completely legal even if the circumvention would be protected by fair use or protected by common sense, the way teaching your dog to dance jazz should be protected by common sense. This effort to muck about with the protections built into the code is a violation of the law. So we have law protected by technology, protected by law, that combine to give the copyright owner more control over copyrighted works than they have ever had in the past. So this is the picture of the free use of the puppy. Now that's four, here's five. In some sense, all of this wouldn't matter if it weren't for number five. If it weren't for number five, there'd be lots of competition and we could listen to the economists and they'd tell us competition would shake this whole problem out, that the market would discipline players so that they offered the rights that people want. But here's why the market fails here, right? When England embraced the objective of breaking the publishing monopolies, monopolies which Milton referred to as old patentees and monopolizers in the trade of book selling, men who do not labor in an honest profession to learning is indebted, they hated these guys, the booksellers. When England tried to break that up, they adopted this conception of limited times as the tool to do it, and also by granting copyrights to authors, we in the United States decided to adopt a technique to break up the power of these monopolies, so that these monopolies, which each copyright is, are tiny little monopolies out there, lots of little monopolies. And who could object to lots of little monopolies? You know, they can kick them over without any problem when they're just this size, right? But the history of the last 20 years has radically changed this feature of the landscape, too. In the last 20 years, there has been an extraordinary concentration in the media that controls the vast majority of these copyrights. 80% of the music in the world is distributed by five companies. 70% of radio market is controlled by four firms in the United States. 80% of TV is controlled by six firms. In 1947, 80% of newspapers were independent. That number is less than 20% today. 1970s, 10% of the major run films were foreign films. That number is 0.5% today. The consequence of the past 20 years in concentration has been that these tiny little monopolies have slowly morphed into this massive concentration of media within our culture, which means a massive concentration of the person you have to go to to ask permission to build on culture. Concentrated produces, homogenous produces, 
protected content, which altogether, adding these five up, means that we have never in our history had fewer who have controlled more of the development of our culture than now. Never. Not in the times when even copyright was perpetual, because again, even then, copyright was an extraordinarily limited right that regulated only publishers. But now, this tiny little right regulates not just publishers, not just for publishing, not just for absolute copies. It regulates all of us in the ordinary activity that we would engage in as we engage in this ideal of being the digital consumer, the rip, mix, and burn consumer who would take this culture in a Disney way and remake it. So now the message is, nobody can do to the Disney Corporation what Walt Disney did to the Brothers Grimm. And Disney creativity, this act of taking and retelling, can only occur with the permission of someone else, and fortunately an increasingly small number of people you would need to ask for that permission. We shift, then, from this society that was based on the idea of free culture where one could take and build into this permission society, from a free culture into one where this culture is increasingly owned and the ability for ordinary people to build on it and share what they build is controlled and regulated by the law. Oops, sorry. Okay. Now, these changes have consequences for ordinary social life. They have consequences for political life. They have consequences far outside of the tiny space that copyright lawyers would like to live. Here are four consequences. The first is a decline of a certain sort, a decline of creativity for the obvious reason that as the lawyers are increasingly occupying this field, the costs of creativity go up, and therefore the quantity of creativity goes down. It's the simple economoids view of the story. There's a second decline, also a decline in creativity. This time, the space for independent, well-regulated social criticism shrinks because the ability to engage in independent, well-regulated social criticism is increasingly controlled by someone else. What gets made is what is approved to be made. What is approved to be made is what will sell. What sells is what is, in this consistent sense, mainstream. What others want to hear, regardless of what others might want to say. This is a change in the opportunity for creativity to express itself because of legal constraints imposed through the architecture and technology of the law. Here's decline three, also a decline in creativity. Our ability to cultivate our culture, to take and build on it in a free and creative way depends upon this material being ex easily available. The Sonny Bono Act, as I said, extended the term of copyrights for 20 years. If we take the content that was produced between 1923 and 1942, there's only 2% of that content 
that has any continuing commercial value at all. This is the only work that is being exploited today, and it's because of that 2% that the Sonny Bono copyright term was extended. In order to give that 2% 20 more years of protection, they extended the copyrights for all works that were currently under copyright. But what that means is that for an extraordinarily large amount of our past, the ability to cultivate that work essentially disappears because the costs of tracking down and identifying the copyright owners are wildly exceeding any possible benefit. In the case that we brought challenging the Sonny Bono Act, there was a brief filed by Hal Roach Studios that owns the copyrights to Laurel and Hardy. Hal Roach Studios brief said, look, we make millions of dollars because of the Copyright Term Extension Act. Millions of dollars because Laurel and Hardy would otherwise pass into the public domain and the world loves Laurel and Hardy. But if you do not strike down this law, the brief said, there will be a whole generation of American film that literally disappears. It disappears because the cost of clearing the copyrights for this film is extraordinarily high. There are many copyrights that are associated with any particular film. It could never be worth it to clear those copyrights to restore and distribute those films. And this film is produced on nitrate-based stock, which literally disappears after a period of time. When the Bono Act expires, this brief said, the most important archive of our culture in film will have just literally decayed. Now, just because they desire to extend the work of copyrights for 2%, this obtuse way of thinking about the value of the public domain meant that the rest of this copyrighted work gets locked in this black hole of legal regulation, inaccessible by ordinary people just at the time when the technology is enabling us to build the Library of Alexandria for the first time in a millennium, the technology, would enable us to take this content that is otherwise unused and make it available cheaply and easily around the world, except for the legal regulation that says before you can copy this content, you must get the permission of an author who cannot even be identified. Decline number four. The most troubling, a decline in truth, right? To reduce the independence of a creative culture, the opportunity of people to create independent of others who control what they can say, is to reduce the truth that we recognize. No nation in the world can afford this less than we we are in the middle of a different war right now. A war where terrorists are willing to kill themselves because they hate us so, but how many of us could even say why? How many of Americans could identify what is it in the heads of these people that drives them to this type of hatred? But how could we? in this present culture of creativity ever express this in a way that could exceed and penetrate the walls of this current architecture for distribution of culture. 
where every bit of news must be a story, every bit of story must be entertainment, carefully choreographed, nicely framed, but truth here doesn't fit a frame, right? Truth here needs a freedom to speak which is to flourish independent of this frame that gets imposed by a certain legitimate commercial structure, but which itself cannot begin to present to the rest of us the critical information we need as citizens of the world, especially when we take the position of being the most powerful nation in the world. This war is, importantly, a culture war. It's a culture war between those who insist on a freedom to build culture against an insane and unintended consequence that has been produced by the law. Insane and unintended because our tradition in America has always been, from the very beginning, a tradition of balance, not this system bloated by 200 years of lobbyists who have seen in this government-granted monopoly the opportunity to protect their clients from competition. This shrinking freedom to speak, to create, to cultivate, to criticize is a product of an extremism not a product of a tradition that has any connection to our own. Our tradition has always been the tradition that balances the system of control against the opportunity to produce and create context. Now, so what is our response? What should our response to this transformation be? It is not to reject copyright. I am a fanatical believer in the system of copyright that defines the balanced tradition that I was taught. It is to restore a balance in this system that 200 years of bloating have removed and that the technology of the Internet has exacerbated. It is to seek a balance first within the courts and legislatures. Now, we have tried in these two contexts to seek that balance. As most of you know, this battle has been fought in Congress and in a number of cases. In these contexts, the claim has always been that our tradition defines a tradition of balance that we should return to. But both of these venues, the courts and Congress, have failed so far. And the most recent failure was my own in the case of Eldred versus Ashcroft, where after four years of litigating on behalf of people who build on the public domain, we brought to the Supreme Court a claim that said, when the framers said limited times, when they said that copyright was to be for a limited time to promote the progress of science, they meant it. They meant by that that the power to grant monopolies to favorites should be restricted 
and that there should be no power continually for Congress to effectively pick who gets to exploit our cultural past. For that's just what Congress did in 1998. When Congress was asked by the Disney Corporation, by the owners of the Gershwin estate, to extend the term of their copyrights, they were told it's better for us, the Disney Corporation, to control what happens to Mickey Mouse in the future than for the public at large. And Congress chose to benefit them over the public at large. We said to this court, a court which has defined its recent history as a court that limits the power of Congress, that if you're going to limit the power of Congress in one area, the same arguments should limit the power of Congress in this area. Early in this case, I sat with one of my most respected uh, colleagues, a crit, as we call them, in the law, which means a person who believes that the law is really nothing more than politics. And I was trying to convince him of the law behind our claim. And Sandy said to me, Larry, you're right. There is absolutely no way that they could decide against you if they decided according to these principles. But he said to me, when is it that the court has ever decided a case so strongly against such an array of commercial interests? And I said, Sandy, that is the most boring way to think about how the Supreme Court decides its cases. So the Supreme Court decided this case in a way that was, of course, extraordinarily depressing, because for those of us who believe the law is something more than politics, we had to answer people like Sandy. And we have to answer people like the lobbyists who called me, one of them, immediately after the case was decided, a very sweet man, a very decent person. And he said, you have to understand what's going on here. All you had, he said, was ideals and principles. <laughs> and you were against all the money in the world. And he echoed Sandy's question. When was the last time that ideals and principles arrayed against all the money in the world won? And I thought, you know, wow, hmm. You know, the civil rights movement was not against all the money in the world. It was against a bunch of crazy racists, right? Okay, that was strong fight, but it wasn't all the money in the world. So when was the last time that ideals and principles stood against all the money in the world? A lesson from this might be never. That's not my lesson. The question for me is not when was the last time. The question for me is when is the next time that ideals and principles stand against all the money in the world to free this culture from the constraint of this unintended set of regulations that now have transformed us from a society where we could freely build on our past into a society where the power for us to build on our past depends on the permission given to us by those who have no higher standing than that they have all the money in the world. Thank you very much.
questions? Right there. If you want to wait for the microphone. Oh, I was just going to say that I'd be, I'd be more frightened by the, the whole presentation um, if I didn't have such a strong belief in the fundamental lawlessness of the mix, rip, or is it rip, mix, and burn culture. Um, you know, we have, you know, they, they tried to knock down Napster, and now there are dozens of, of different uh, sites or, or software that, that will perform the same function. You know, log on to the, a fan page for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and you'll find, you know, 50 or 60 stories by people, you know, fan fiction where they've stolen the characters and, and created their own, uh, their own stories. So, and you even mentioned in, in Japan that they don't have the same protections, and this has been a recurring issue with, you know, the movies getting bootlegged and, and taken over here. So, you know, there, there is the risk of, of jail and civil suits, but how realistic is it? Um, I haven't seen it really happen yet, and I'm, I'm kind of confident that the direction is going in the opposite way, that there seems to be more and more out there. I mean, I can okay. log on to the Guardian site if I want to read newspapers from another country. Right. So let's take the examples and break them into two parts. You talk about fan fiction. So fan fiction is basically there are stories out there. The Star Trek has got a bunch of them. Buffy the Vampire Slayer has got a bunch of them, where fans get together and they write you know, other alternative dialogue lines to the stories that they've seen. They get together and they create stories out of other people's stories. Now, the law, as interpreted, is that this is wrong and illegal. Now, one way to respond to that is to say, well, how do we stop all these criminals from telling stories about stories they've heard? Another way to respond to that is, why is it ever wrong to retell a story from another story that you've heard? How is this possible in a free society that I'm not allowed to say, well, you know, when Star Trek uh, episode 14 did X, we should have had Kirk kiss uh, um, you know, somebody interesting other than the people he kisses. You know, what is it about us that we would accept as obvious that the law should be able to tell us that we're not allowed to tell that story? Now, the fact is, I am allowed to tell you fan fiction stories in this room. The only thing I'm not allowed to do is to post it on the Internet. Why? Oh, because now I've made a copy. Well, what an insane reason to distinguish between my freedom and my uh, lack of freedom, the fact that there's a copy involved, right? I'm not saying that there shouldn't be protection for the ability of Buffy the Vampire to stop some other competing television station from building a derivative work out it, but it makes no sense that that controls the ability of ordinary people to tell stories about parts of their own culture. If we must live in this commercial culture, we at least must be allowed to comment upon and criticize this culture. Now, the other part, I think, is much more significant. They shut down Napster. There is more content distributed for free on the Internet right now through file-sharing-like technologies than there ever was at the height of Napster. And under current law, that is all, quote, criminal activity. Right? because it's stealing. Why is it stealing? It's stealing because the only way that artists are allowed to get compensation is through cop in compensation for copies. Is that the only way that the law in other contexts assures compensation for the use of copyrighted material? No. For example, um, there's lots of contexts where Artists have the right to pay a compulsory licensing right, or distributors have the right to pay a compulsory licensing right. Then they can distribute the content so long as they've paid that flat fee. 
and therefore the distribution is now legal, even though the artists are getting paid. Now, in 1998, when they shut Napster down, the president of Napster said, give us a compulsory license. We will pay for the content that our customers are sharing. And if Congress had granted the compulsory license in 1998, then right now there would be 10 or 12 companies out there finding creative, new, innovative ways to distribute content in a way that competes with free, but also competes with free to make it more easy and therefore to drive customers to them. Artists would be paid, and the vast majority of content being distributed would no longer be, quote, criminal content, right? Because it would be according to the compulsory licensing right. Now, that was resisted, not because there's something sacrosanct about charging for copies. That was resisted because the record companies knew that if there was a compulsory license, there would be many competitors out there who would be competing with them. The five major labels that control 80% of the distribution of content in the world would no longer control 80% of the distribution of content in the world. So they effectively resist this change in the law, but changing the law would have changed the character of this behavior from criminal to non-criminal for the vast majority of those people who want to just obey the law. So you're right. It is a terrible problem right now that people are basically doing what is criminal in order to get access to this content. But the problem, again, is not that the activity that people are engaging in when they look up a song from 1950 that they can't get anywhere else. Uh, it's not because that activity in itself is inherently criminal. It's because the system for regulating access to this content is terrible. So in my view, we ought to have an interim period of time where there is a compulsory license for the distribution of this content on the network. Companies like Napster or Kazaa would pay that license. They would compete with the other free services out there. The expectation is the vast majority of people would play within the rules if the rules are easy and fair. Artists would get paid, there'd be more competition, and content would be available more cheaply. That would be a way of facilitating this transition as we develop the Internet and the way the Internet's going to develop. That would change this world from a world where most people are engaging in, in legitimately criminal behavior to uh, a world where they're engaging in behavior which is exactly the same but is no longer defined as criminal. Our response, though, you know, this is like the prohibition problem. It's like the drug problem, right? Our response, instead of finding a solution that channels the behavior in a way that actually is productive, has been to increasingly penalize the behavior in a way that drives it underground and doesn't achieve any good except making most people feel as they engage in this behavior that they're doing something criminal. So when Jack Valenti says, it's terrible, our children are being raised to believe that what they ought to do is steal, I agree. So let's change the regulations so that what they engage in is no longer stealing and artists are actually paid for the content which they get access to. Just sort of going off of what you just said, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on some of the new for-pay music download services that have those draconian ebook-esque restrictions on them, uh, and some of the some of the new tactics that they're using. They wouldn't survive in a competitive market. If there really were this compulsory license that made it easy for anybody to set up a competing service, then these draconian controls would be defeated by competition. So 
the embrace here is not embrace of the right of people to steal whatever they want. It's embrace of a system where competition actually drives the suppliers to supply something that the customers actually want. And that's not what's happening right now. These systems are broken from the very beginning, and even the purveyors of these systems recognize this is not giving people what, in fact, they would be willing to pay for yet. I don't mean this in an adversarial sense, but I'm just a bit curious. In light of your discussion of the merits of Walt Disney creativity, why do the Creative Commons licenses include a license that forbids the creation of derivative works? Well, so we're going to make sure everybody's on the same page about the story first, right? Um, so one of the strategies that we've adopted, given how successful we've been in the courts and the legislatures so far, is to attempt through voluntary action to get people to layer a layer of reasonable copyright law on top of their content. So we've created this foundation called the Creative Commons. Creative Commons enables people to select licenses which license their content out in a way that's much freer than the standard all rights reserved copyright license. So we give them a range of options. And the options include, you could say, you can use my work so long as you give me attribution. You can use my work so long as uh, you don't make any derivative works of it. You can use my work so long as it's not for commercial purposes, and so on. Um, now, we experiment with a range of these options, really to see what people uh, want and what people like in this context. Because again, our belief is that we're just enabling people to give away some of their rights because they will realize a world with a richer creative commons is actually a world that benefits them. There's a huge political battle, though, about how much freedom, quote, you give people to limit their rights. And so one decision we made is that people have got to have the right to restrict derivative works. Um, and uh, uh, you know, we'll review how sensible that makes going, for, uh, going forward. But right now, that seems to be popular for a lot of people, depending on what it is you'd be using your work for. We've had a lot of sampling artists who have asked for the reverse. They've asked for a restriction that says, you cannot make an, a direct copy of my work and redistribute it, but you can only make a derivative copy of my work and redistribute it. So you're allowed to sample my work. You're just not allowed to make a full copy and distribute the full copy. And the reason is they're in a sampling culture where what they're eager for people to do is to take and sample their work and mix it with their own work. But they do want to sell their own work, so they don't want you to just take and reduplicate their work. So there's a range of people and a range of options. But all we're trying to do is to say, let's layer on sensibility to this system to contrast with the extreme view of copyright, which gets manifested every time you see the all rights reserved claim that people assert everywhere and always. I'm very sympathetic to what you've been trying to imply tonight, but uh, you haven't really told us what's in the mind of congressmen when they vote to extend these these copyrights perpetually. They must be responding to uh, more than just crass, moneyed lobbyists, but I, I believe that they, they have a way of imagining that because there's so much cultural output from 
the Western world or from the U.S. or from Hollywood or something, that they, they believe that this is a very productive system and that they, they're really not stifling anything. They probably can look at this event in, in Japan that you say is extremely creative, realize they've never heard of it, but also know that there's a lot of stuff in the U.S. that does get to Japan. So it seems like there's a, there's a story that lots of people can get wound up in and confused about here. Could you? There, there's, no doubt that, there's no doubt that there's a reason for what they're doing, right? It's not just that tons of money is paid for them to do what they're doing. The question, though, is whether the reasons have anything to do with the reasons that copyright is supposed to be granted, right? The purpose of the copyright power, express in its clause, is to promote the progress of science. Science was understood much more broadly than we think of it. So promote culture generally. The one thing we know about the way promoting works, the way incentives work, is that it only works prospectively, right? No matter what we do, Gershwin is not going to give us anything more. Congress can decree and give him all the money you want, but you can't incent a dead person, right? So when you extend the term of copyright for works that already exist, you're not extending the copyright in a way that will actually promote the progress of anything except increase the money which particular artists get. Now, the artists came to Congress and they said, well, you know, we need, some of them said, like the Gershwin estate, we need to be able to control what people do with the Gershwin work. We preserve it in a certain way. We don't want people, for example, to perform Porgy and Bess without an African-American cast, right? So they want to exercise control over that. I understand how they want to exercise control over that. I don't understand how it's legitimate for Congress to pick which viewpoints get to exercise control over our culture. It doesn't seem to me consistent with a system of free expression. The other people came and they said, well, Europe has extended their copyright term, so we need to extend our copyright term. So we need to, as they said, harmonize. Now, there's a detail here which turns out they didn't harmonize the terms between the two countries, but even if they did, that argument, too, has no limit to its force, right? Because Germany extended its term by 20 years because of the war. Then Europe harmonized on Germany because they all wanted a simple single standard. Then we harmonized on Europe. But we didn't harmonize on all of Europe, so now we're longer than some terms in Europe. So now the Europeans say they have to extend their term to harmonize with us. And then there are other countries that have longer than Europe, and the claim is made, well, now we're going to have to harmonize with these longer countries. So this is a spiral to increase forever. There's nothing to stop it. And the point is, according to the constitutional vision, you would think that there's something to stop it, which is only grants copyrights where they're actually promoting progress. And that means going forward, you're creating more incentives to produce something. Now, Justice Breyer, in his dissent, um, it's a brilliant dissent, he criticized uh, one part of what we had argued. We had said, it's not even necessary going forward that extending this term actually creates any new incentives. Because given the way you discount income streams, the current term is already so long that it gives an author 99.8% of the value of a perpetual term. The difference between a perpetual term and this term is 0.2%. Justice Breyer said that was wrong. It's in fact 99.99997% of a perpetual term. So the point is, even going forward, the term is already so long that it can't plausibly be said 
that anybody is making a decision whether to create a new bit of writing today based on whether their grandchildren will have another 20 years of copyright protection at all. Now, there were people who testified that it did matter. Um, Bob Dylan came in and said when he wrote some of his best work, he believed that the copyright term was already life plus 70, suggesting that if it weren't, he wouldn't have written some of the work that he was writing. Right now, that's the sort of thing you can say with a straight face only when testifying to Congress, right? The rest of the world looks at this and says, this is ridiculous. This is, this is motivated just by desire to increase the amount of money they get. I understand that desire. Like, I'm all for it, right? I'm wildly in favor of people getting as rich as they can get. But I'm not in favor of silencing the opportunity of others to build on our culture the way everybody has before, just so that a small segment, 2%, can gain a benefit of extended terms. Um, it is my impression that in science and technology, America has been able to maintain a lead for the last, say, decades and so forth. Now, if you agree with that observation, maybe you don't, what is really the intrinsic difference between science, technology, and the Mickey Mouse that make science and technology escape the grip of the copyright law? So most of science and technology, the only protections that science and technology typically, typically get are the protections of patents. Patents and copyrights were about the same length at the founding. They were both 14 years. Um, copyrights could be renewed. And patents have generally stayed around that same length. They're now 20 years from the time you file, and copyrights are now 95 years to life plus 70, depending if it's a normal author or not. So patents have actually remained consistent with something like a limitation in the way that I think the copyright clause should as well. And the reason is the people who are burdened by the patents are more directly the people who uh, participate in the benefit of the patents. So it's they're on both sides of the equation in some sense. They're on both sides of the deal. So they know if they increase the patent term, they pay for it themselves, even if for a particular patent they may get more. So it's a more equal market in that sense. But in the copyright context, because of the concentration of copyrights, there's a small segment who gain a lot by extending the terms, and the rest of us suffer only a little by extending the terms. And so that inequality drives the copyright power in a way that it doesn't drive the patent power. So I don't believe we're going to see the craziness in the context of patents, although um, the pharmaceutical companies are quite good in trying to push Congress to extend the term of their pharmaceutical patents whenever they're expiring with the same type of claims. Uh, but with patents, the resistance to that has been pretty strong. You know, but let's keep, it in, let's keep it in perspective. In the next 20 years, more than 1 million patents will pass into the public domain. In the next 17 years, not one copyrighted work will pass into the public domain. So this difference reflects a fundamental difference in the power that those people have who control how the copyright functions. That uh, recently there has been a movement in the scientific community against two magazines, that's Nature and the Science, because they do not allow readers unsubscribe, uh, without subscription to read them. Perhaps that is really equivalent to the cover right, uh, copyright you are saying. 
because there in the scientific community, the rapid dissemination of information is so important. Yeah, yeah and, and what studies are beginning to show is that people who publish articles in journals that allow open citation on the Internet get more citations to their articles than those who have closed journals on the Internet, which is a, you know, a market structure that will push people to being more open. Uh, and again, my view is if it weren't for the concentration, I think the market structure, the competitive system would take care of most of this. But the problem here is that the uh, direction is controlled so profoundly by a small number of people, and it's to protect themselves. Let's see, one, one last question here. Um, I actually have two questions. One was referring to, um, <laughs> sorry, um, when you were talking about since only 2% of, of the works are commercially profitable now, I believe there was a suggestion once where only, like, the only those commercially profitable can renew can renew their licenses by paying a certain fee every so often. And I don't know if you could just explain that a bit more. And my second question was referring to alternatives to your idea of the compulsory licensing. Um, what do you think about the, I guess, compulsory levy on um, like ISPs and CD burners and then allowing the file sharing um, systems that are currently in place to continue? Um, and in a sense, the the copyright holders would still get paid, essentially, if there's some government bureau controlling all that. Right. So the first, uh, the first suggestion is after, after the defeat, um, I wrote an op-ed, but a lot of people have been pushing us to make this proposal earlier, to say that Congress could pass a law that says 50 years after you publish something, uh, you have to pay a user fee for the copyright system. You can make it very low. You can make it a dollar a year. It doesn't matter, right? 50 years after you publish, you've got to pay this user fee a dollar every year, let's say. If you don't pay it, you know, we could even have Amazon do one-click tax payment or something like that, right? So if you don't pay it for three years, then your work passes into the public domain, just like any tax. If you don't pay your tax, you forfeit the property, right? So uh, it passes into the public domain. But if you do pay it, We'll record your name as having paid it and the thing that it's paid for. So at least if I want to go out and use that work, I know somebody to contact and I can actually get access to that work. So this is a system for pushing work into the public domain. And from the estimates we have under the system before 1976, we know that um, uh, probably 98% of work would be immediately into the public domain out by that system after 50 years because this, again, has no continuing commercial interest at all. Some people would want to continue to keep control over it. All power to them. Let them. Um, Disney would want to keep Mickey Mouse. Fine. I'll give them Mickey Mouse, right? It's the rest of the content out there that is serving no good at all, that it's under control like this, that this sort of system would, would advance. Now, this is the sort of idea that I got, you know, literally hundreds of letters from people saying, oh, it's so obvious, so sensible. Why don't we do it? It's such a great idea. And then I have some friends in Congress, and they say, it's a great idea. It'll never, ever, ever pass. It'll never pass because there's an extremism that governs what happens with copyright policy in Congress, and they will be fought so strongly by those who don't want to crack in the idea the copyright is property that should last forever, that there just is nothing, you know, again, it's all the money on the world on the other side. Now, I think in um, two weeks we can announce a sponsor of the legislation. 
um, a congressperson who um, has agreed to sponsor this kind of legislation, and we'll get a bunch of people who support it. And then there's an opportunity for a political movement, right? People can say, this is sensible, let's do something about it. But, you know, my, um, my books are very pessimistic. My brand is pessimism, you know. So um, why am I pessimistic about this? It's because, um, again, it requires a kind of political motivation and action by us that I'm not sure we've got in us. You know, I just don't know if, if it's out there. You know, I'd, be lo I'd love to be proven wrong about this, but um, uh, I'm still holding my bets. But, you know, that's that proposal. The other point is... That's a different kind of compulsory license, and I think it's a fair, it's a great idea, too. I, I think it's a bad thing to tax disk drives because, um, you know, it turns out that the tax is so weird that the tax on an iPod, for example, in Europe costs more than the disk drive itself, right? So it turns out to have weird effects on what you would produce. But there are places that you could basically impose a tax. Terry Fisher of Harvard has a wonderful little proposal about this. It turns out you don't have to raise a lot of money to buy off the uh, recording industry. They're not such a big industry, right? So my theory is let's find a way to buy them off so that they stop breaking the Internet. And then after we buy them off for 20 years and the Internet evolves to a certain stage, then we can go back to the system that we've got right now where we have systems for controlling how people get access to content. But any of those systems would fit what I was describing as a compulsory license. It's just a simple way to make sure that content gets paid for in some form, artists get access to that money, and um, uh, there's lots of competition out there for figuring new ways to grant access to content. Thank you very much for your <laughs>